You're listening to Ants Talk. My next guest is an ex-Buddhist monk who went from addiction to a monastery to live for four years while he obeyed 227 rules, which even included not tickling another monk. Welcome to the show, Stephen Graham. How are you, Stephen? I'm very good, Anthony. Thanks very much for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm fascinated by your story. Absolutely fascinated. So I know that you lived quite a hedonistic life in Sydney before going into the monastery, which included addiction. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, before I became a Buddhist monk, um, I guess I was involved in the art scene in Sydney. So um, I studied uh, playwriting and acting um, and got involved in uh, the art scene in Sydney through uh, through those kind of avenues. And I guess it just sort of came with the territory, you know, especially uh, the acting crowd tended to, um, you know, kind of work hard and, and party hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I found over time um, addiction became a, a consistent theme in my life and something that I uh, perhaps when I was younger didn't really know was as much of a problem um, as became quite obvious in, in later years. Mm. Uh, so addiction has been a theme that I've had to work with, um, in my, in my personal and also my, you know, kind of spiritual, spiritual life. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, I, I, I'm from Sydney myself. I live in Adelaide now, but lived in Sydney for many years. And it's funny how the lifestyle there is, is really attuned to that. And I, I, I know a lot of my own friends that have had their own battles and stuff like that. And I think it's, very much a city where it's it's easily accessed and also very prevalent in the community so it does make it a lot harder now you stumbled on meditation in your early 20s how did that come about um i i was uh just come out of uh, university and i was staying with a friend in surrey hills uh in sydney i'm amazed um, i didn't (laughs) yeah we probably did (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, it was a, it was a, you know, as you, as you kind of mentioned, it was a bit of a wild time in Sydney. It always is in the inner city. Um, I was living in Surrey Hills and, uh, you know, partying a lot, going out a lot. And I had a, a wonderful friend that I was staying with uh, at her place there in Surrey Hills. And she, she could see that I was interested. I was reading a lot. I was interested in, I'd always been interested in philosophy and the different um, kind of religious texts. And I was just a very wide reader uh, and very inquisitive. Um, and so she suggested, uh, that I go to, uh, a meditation course with her. She'd been up at a meditation course, uh, called Vipassana meditation, which I think a lot of people are familiar with as the, the 10 day meditation thing where you don't yeah. speak. Uh, so she'd done several of those and I hadn't really done much meditation before I'd, you know, I'd read about it. I'd read about, uh, Buddhism and some of the Vedic uh, traditions. And I thought, why not? I'll, I'll give it a shot. So I went to the Newtown Buddhist library. Uh, it was a, I think it was a very cold, dark kind of, uh, you know, winter, winter morning. Um, and we trudged off. Uh, we walked from, um, from Surrey Hills to Newtown in the morning. I don't know why we walked, but we did. And by the time we got there, <laughs> it, was, it was dark, it was cold, and, and the Newtown Buddhist Library looked like it was shut. So I was actually quite thankfully relieved. I really didn't want to, you know, kind of be a part of it at that point. But we, we noticed that the garage door uh, downstairs at the library was locked and there seemed to be some noise coming from behind the door. So we, um, we knocked very gently on the door and up rolled the, the garage door um, and there were about 10 people huddled around, um, you know, having a bit of a chat and about to get started in meditation. And that was kind of my first entry point into meditation. I didn't really know what to expect, um, but the facilitator uh, guided some uh, breath meditation 
And I, I wouldn't say that I had a particularly, you know, kind of overwhelmingly transcendent experience of meditation for the first time. But what I did notice is that for the first time, my mind tended to get a bit more peace and a bit more stillness. Mm. Um, so I found that intriguing. It, it took a while for that to really uh, gain traction in my life. But looking back on it, uh, at the time, I think I probably underestimated the impact that had on me, but it, it seems to create, uh, you know, like a little kernel, uh, which grew and grew over time um, into, you know, becoming a, a Buddhist monk in later years. Mm. It's funny. I actually, um, I've never done meditation myself, but through the COVID lockdown, a friend of mine was doing a online one through Deepak Chopra. And so she right. had to invite people to do it with her. And I was one of the people she invited. So I think it went for 21 days and I basically had to meditate for 21 days, do all these exercises throughout. And I must say yeah. it really did help during COVID. It did give me, I think, a lot more peace than what I probably mm. would have had if I hadn't have been doing it because it just gave right. me sort of time out, almost like a little mini holiday within my head amongst being in my four walls, you know, for 24 hours a day. So it did really did make a difference to my life. I know it did. So mm. now you practiced as a monk for four years, which included six to 10 hours of meditation a day and the <laughs> 227 rules. Tell us more about that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, an intriguing thing for people. People often ask, often ask me, uh, you know, what was it like to be a monk and what did you do and what was the lifestyle like? Um, the lifestyle itself, uh, well, I guess to start at the beginning when I arrived at the monastery, I really didn't know too much about, uh, you know, Buddhist monasticism. I'd, I'd read a few books uh, from a teacher called Arjun Chah, uh, who's a very famous teacher uh, in the Theravadan Thai forest tradition uh, in Thailand. And I was, I was quite intrigued because they, were, they seemed very earthy. They seemed very um, practical and also very funny. He just seemed to be very insightful um, into the shenanigans that humans get up to and how we use our minds and how the whole thing was, um, you know, a wisdom practice, but also quite hilarious at the same time. And we start mm. to observe ourselves. So when I found out that uh, Arjan Brahm, which was my teacher, um, was actually a, a teacher that was practicing in Perth, which is my hometown, um, and had been trained by Arjan Chah uh, and spent time with him in Thailand, I thought, well, I'm just going to rock up and, and see what happens. So uh, the beginning of that journey was coming into the monastery and they get you to stick around for a little while and uh, just sort of observe some basic what's known as precepts, mm -hmm. uh, which are kind of ethical precepts, just basic stuff like not killing anything, um, not lying to people, not stealing, um, not taking any drugs or intoxicants. Um, and at that time, there was, a, you know, no kind of um, sexual activities just to be able to kind of keep a, a basic kind of celibate lifestyle. Um, and over time, as you stick around a bit more, you get ordained into what's known as a, a Samanera or a junior monk. Um, and then you can uh, get ordained as a, a fully ordained uh, monk or what's known as a bhikkhu, which is observing 227 rules. So um, the, the lifestyle was quite simple, really. Like we, we would get up early in the morning, do some meditation, uh, maybe go for breakfast, do some duties around the monastery. So we did forest work and stuff like that to be able to maintain the property that we were on in Serpentine. Mm -hmm. um, and then we would come back and have our one meal of the day. So we just had one meal uh, just before 12 o'clock. Um, that was because the, the, the meals were donated. So um, it might seem a bit, a bit hardcore, but because monks aren't allowed to uh, cook their own food or even handle money and things like that, wow. we would get people coming in. Yeah, so the, the tradition that. itself... It, 
I, it, it depends on the Buddhist tradition. So that the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, which is the, um, you know, the monks in brown robes that you see in like Thailand, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, countries like that, um, they observe uh, what's known as the Vinaya, which is a monastic code. And that specifies that monks really aren't allowed to be able to handle money or, or cook their own food. And, and the reason for that is um, that they're encouraged to have a relationship to uh, people that support them. So there's always seen as this kind of exchange that goes on. So people will come and give material things to the monks, such as food or maybe clothes or, um, you know, things like that for their, for their monastery. And the monks will give them something back in exchange. They'll give them a, a meditation teaching or a Dharma talk or um, some kind of, you know, spiritual food, so to speak. So there's like this symbiotic relationship so it was set up that way to be able to encourage uh monks to still have a relationship to people around them and not just go and be kind of hermits that sort of tuned out from society yeah yeah subscribe to ants talk what was some of the the weirdest of the 227 rules or hardest even (laughs) (laughs) um this this, there's definitely some strange ones in there like The, the tickling one is strange. Um, it, it's uh, it's a strange one. There's there's not allowed to tickle another monk. You're not allowed to scare another monk. So no, wow. no jumping out from behind yeah. behind trees <laughs> and giving people a heart attack. Um, <laughs> most of the most of the rules, um, the, the way the rules were uh, kind of formed was that they grew out of um, kind of real use cases as it evolved uh, back in ancient India with someone like the Buddha. Um, having a, a kind of sprawling uh, spiritual uh, milieu of people coming into his presence or coming into his uh, work and then just having to negotiate that. So things would happen um, and they would grow organically out of those situations. So they weren't, they weren't sort of uh, laid down in stone from the beginning. It was like an organic process that kind of grew up over time. Um, yeah, there's some strange ones in there, but I think most of the rules are basically designed to keep to keep monks away from situations that are going to be compromising to their spiritual practice. Um, so for example, a lot of our rules are centered around, um, you know, women or, or uh, you know, the, what you do in the presence of women um, because they, they're, they're trying to encourage people to live a celibate lifestyle because that's seen as more conducive uh, to meditation. Uh, it's not that, you know, being in a marriage uh, is inherently, problematic or anything like that it's just that it's not conducive to um that kind of lifestyle Mm. yeah so how was the celibacy (laughs) (laughs) the celibacy actually was um well that i I guess for me it was a challenge i I guess uh, a lot of monks have a uh you know challenges with that sexuality is such a you know as you know like a natural part of life and i guess you learn some big lessons about um sexuality when when you're practicing in a way that uh, moves you away from that. Mm. Um, I, I guess the the main thing I learned about uh, sexuality in general was that I used to think that 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 my sexuality. Uh, what, what I really learned was that being in isolation and being away from people. Um, that there were times where I really had no external stimulus, so to speak. I, I didn't have any women around me. I didn't have any um, opportunity. Uh, to do that, Um, but I would feel this force or this almost like this fever um, come up in me from time to time. And so I learned a lot about uh, that sexual urge uh, in that space. I I learned that it's a natural part, almost like a force that just kind of moves through us. 
uh, from time to time. So you, you start to develop a bit of a different relationship to to what that is. It's almost like an energy that just kind of moves through the body from time to time. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because I've, I've actually got a friend that's a Buddhist monk and he is gay and also uh-huh. was living in Darlinghurst. <laughs> So right. I just think to myself, I don't know how he put up with those challenges, but he managed to do it. <laughs> he did it very well, I must say. I mean, he's now gone to sort of a country area up in northern New South Wales, so I'm thinking that's going to be a lot better for him. But, yeah, I don't know how okay. he did it in Darlinghurst himself. It would have been quite a challenge. Yeah. So what imagine. was the one thing yeah. you missed during this time? Um. <clears throat> probably, probably women, I think, you know, the, the <laughs> relationships in general. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also family as well. Uh, the, the, oh, I think okay. relationships generally were, were, were difficult because um, we weren't prohibited from seeing family or friends uh, from our former life. Um, but the, the mobility you have around being able to kind of just move around and call people when you want or see people yeah. when you want or travel interstate whenever you want. Um, uh, are discouraged. Uh, they're not prohibited, but they're discouraged. Uh, so that was that was difficult at times because you know there's key people in your life where, as I just think it's a natural human impulse that we find nourishment and human connection uh, to be really important things. And I've always been someone that really values um, friendship and connection, uh, even though I'm quite an introverted person. I I, I kind of need that, you know, as we all do. Yeah. I think. Um, so there's times where you're, you're by yourself, uh, and it's difficult. It's challenging because you're having to kind of draw back constantly on your own company. And and that can be a real blessing because it it teaches you things about yourself. It teaches you to pull on inner resources that you never really knew you had until you needed to, to have them. Um, but at the same time, that was, that was difficult. I kind of wish I had, I could, you know, phone a friend and, uh, you know, get, get some advice from time to time. Yeah. I suppose that would be a hard thing too, because with the relationships with your friends and family, you've also then got to consider their influences and their pastimes, et cetera, that may then contradict what you're trying to do with your own journey. That's it. That's it. So you, you, you sort of draw a line in the sand and, um, it does separate out you know, people and, and circumstances. And mm. I, I found that was a consistent theme even before I became a monk. You know, I found there was this kind of to and fro between, for many years in Sydney, it was a very interesting uh, oscillation between uh, a kind of hedonistic lifestyle and then trying to move into meditation. And over time, you know, the meditative path won. Um, but along the way, I, I felt like I really had to let go of certain people that were obstructing that or certain circumstances or certain jobs or whatever it may be uh, to kind of clear the path. And so that was a consistent theme even before I became a monk and, and certainly when I was a monk as well. If you like your beauty products to stand out, look a little different and smell amazing, then I'm pretty sure you should check out Sugar Monster. Brand new and completely Adelaide-based, Sugar Monster scrubs are natural body products with a quirky style to them. You'll have to see to know why. All completely handmade, vegan and cruelty-free with skin-loving ingredients that your body will love. Plus, they smell good enough to eat. But don't actually do that. Check out the range at sugarmonster.com.au and support local business. So what made you leave the monastery? Um, I felt like... Really, I'm, uh, to be honest, I'm still 
sort of processing that. I, I think that um, I, I think I was yearning to come back and contribute to society in a different way. Mm. Uh, I I felt like the monastery for a time uh, was a was a way for me to kind of go deeper into that particular uh, practice and that way of living. Um, I I just felt over time that I I kind of my calling my perhaps my deeper calling wasn't to be uh, living in that kind of lifestyle, although it served a purpose for a few years. Mm. Um, and maybe to touch on that that aspect of human relationships, I I feel like I need to be integrated back into society and uh, giving back to people uh, in that kind of way rather than in a lifestyle where I'm a little bit more uh, aloof and kind of on the on the fringe. Mm. I mean, I suppose in a way it's it's almost like training for a job and that was your training mm-hmm. and now you're out there mm. doing the job as such. That's how I would sort of look at it. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. So you say that most meditation apps and teachers miss the key elements of meditation. What would you say they are? I think, I think when it comes to apps and stuff like that, they can be very useful. And I, I, I guess the positive thing about apps um, is that they actually encourage people to meditate. But mm. I think um, with the commodification of, of, of meditation in general, uh, I think people often put meditation in the same basket as pretty much any other commodity that they can kind of just pick up casually and put down casually. Mm. Uh, and that kind of relationship to meditation really... Uh, empties it out from some of the core things that have been with that tradition for a while. So what those things are, I would consider to be that meditation traditionally uh, at its best, I think is always taught in a progressive way. So um, people are encouraged to build uh, a solid foundation of meditative awareness and then kind of deepen that over time. And that's something that an app really can't give you because they're not designed that way. Mm-hmm. And often the people that are, um, you know, uploading content onto apps, uh, the, the format doesn't really support that. Um, the, the other key element, I think, in meditative development is community. And this is something I really learned from being part of the Buddhist Sangha or the you know, Buddhist order of monks, is that community support and doing it alongside other people um, is basically almost the whole thing, really, because if we if we meditate, it's very hard to meditate by yourself, as you as you may know. Like the, a lot of people get started in a very kind of stop start way to meditation. They'll try it out for a little while. They might use an app. They'll do it by themselves, and then it, when the practice kind of falls away or life gets in the way, they put it down, um, and then they just forget about it for yeah. years, or you know. Uh, so that's a very common experience. <clears throat> that's because those two things, those two core things, aren't there. They're not being taught in a progressive way, which encourages them to uh, build a solid foundation in meditative awareness and then kind of deepen that as a as a way of exploring themselves. And they really haven't got a community or a family they can plug into to be able to feel like they can get momentum and buoyancy. Uh, with their practice and be part of like a culture in meditation. Mm, mm. Yeah. Now I know you've also launched Supermind Meditation during COVID. Tell us more about that. Supermind was a venture to be able to um, help people meditate better and do it together to touch on those two points. So I was interested in supporting people during COVID because what I saw and, and continue to see, especially in, you know, in Australia, like places like Melbourne, for example, are in very heavy lockdown at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm, I was very concerned about the effect that increased social isolation or what I like to just call solitude would have on people's mental health over time. 
Uh, and it was a, it was something that I never really imagined myself being able to offer because being a monk, I had to become acquainted with solitude. I spent weeks or, you know, months on retreat. Uh, I spent a lot of time by myself. I was also in community as well, but there were plenty of opportunities to really get comfortable in my own skin, in my own company, um, and in relationship to myself, um, in solitude. And I never really imagined the world going into a situation where people were going to be forced into isolation or forced into solitude. It didn't really seem like a likely situation, but, you know, here we are and uh, we have a virus that's presented itself and uh, people are being forced indoors. <clears throat> and the difference between what I uh, experienced and what they're experiencing is that my, my experience was by choice and I had tools to be able to navigate that experience and I had a community around me to be able to help me on that path. And when I saw what was happening with people that were uh, put into a situation of isolation without choice, without any tools and without any community, um, I thought, wow, this is going to be really challenging for people and people's mental health uh, is going to be affected. So it was a real call to action for me to be able to um, try to gift out some tools in the online space in the form of meditation, uh, guided meditation and mindfulness exercises and just reflective things that people could do and experience and, and watch and, and so on to be able to help people uh, to navigate them through that space because I was concerned about, yeah, just about how much people might be suffering in that, in that isolation. Mm. I mean, even for myself, I actually love being alone. I love mm -hmm. being isolated. <laughs> I'm quite happy with my own company. But being on lockdown where I couldn't even leave the house really started mm -hmm. to affect me. And mm -hmm. funny enough, when things started sort of slowly opening again and there was the opportunity even just to walk around the block, I took that opportunity and started doing that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. But when you are in that huge lockdown like they are in Melbourne at the moment, I really do think it is so challenging for the mind. And especially for people that, are more social than what I am and that love to be outside and love being around people and socializing. It's, it must be excruciating for them. It really must. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine it would be. And, and it, it really harks back to, and I'm, I'm not saying this to big note myself or showboat or anything like that, but to, to be honest, in terms of the isolation aspect of COVID, like it didn't, I wasn't affected at all. And, and, and the reason for that was that I'm used to that space um, but I, my mind leapt back to spaces where I wasn't used to that yeah. um, and the emotions that were coming up um, and things I had to navigate, all the anxiety and the depression and the fear and the, you know, all, this, all the emotions are heightened um, in, in uh, isolation um, mm. and people aren't used to feeling those emotions uh, a lot of the time in, in life because we're moving around, we're busy, busy, very hectic with what we're doing and we have a lot of distractions and um, when we're you know, when we're restricted in our movement, <clears throat> a lot of those distractions, <clears throat> excuse me, are still there. Um, but the emotion, you can't really escape the emotions. So uh, when the emotions are brought up, uh, people are having to face these things that they perhaps haven't had a, an opportunity to face before. Yeah. Um, so. And so it can be very challenging. Yeah. yeah. So I'd, I'd love for people to be able to use that time or at least have things that they can draw on to be able to, uh, to heal in that mm. space as well. I think that's the thing too, is that we're going from it being a choice 
to it being forced upon us. That's another issue I think a lot of people have to deal with. I know that with, with my own circle of friends, I mean, there have been relationship breakdowns during this period. There have been people moving out of homes where they've been living together for years as friends or whatever. Um, it's affected many relationships. And I think that things like what you're doing, offering the supermind is really good for people to take up upon themselves because the better that we're feeling mentally, I think we're going to be able to deal a lot better with the physical things around us also. Yeah. And, and I guess you touched on a really important point there, Anthony, because um, a lot of people think that meditation is just sitting down with your eyes closed and like, how's that going to, you know, solve problems in my life. Um, but you, you hit it on the head because what, what that exercise is really about, although it might not seem it on, on first inspection, is developing a more comfortable relationship uh, with yourself and with your experience. Um, and like you touched on, if you, can, if you can cultivate that within yourself and cultivate more stability and more peace and more calm, uh, then you'll be able to move through life uh, in that manner and you'll be able to negotiate some of these things that are happening in your life, you'll be able to notice um, when you're giving yourself a hard time or picking other people apart or these things that naturally happen in enclosed spaces and the cabin fever and you kind of feeling that you can get when you're boxed in with other people, um, you'll be able to negotiate that and let some of that stuff go to be able to live more harmoniously uh, and hopefully you know, uh, work with the relationships around you. So it's not just sitting down cross-legged tuning out from the world. It's actually an exercise in getting in touch with yourself so that you can engage more uh, in life and engage more uh, with the relationships around you. Ants talk. I've got one more question. What would you say sure. the public's <laughs> misconception would be about Buddhist monks? I think, I think when I tell people I was a Buddhist monk, there's a, there's a combination of people often think it's a bit mysterious um, they often have a bit of a cartoon idea uh, about monks uh, and they don't really know what it's about. I think some people see it as <clears throat> an escapist thing. They think, oh, you're not, you're not able to deal with life. Um, you're running so you away went, something. Yeah. You're run, yeah, you just ran away into the forest because you're having a hard time. Um, and in some ways, they're correct, right? Like, to be honest, like in some ways, um, that is the, the kind of catalyst for going and doing some contemplation is that because you're, you know, you're becoming kind of disenchanted with certain elements of life and you feel like you need to go within to, to figure that out. Mm. Um, but I think what people need to understand is that that, that kind of work, it's not selfish, that it's not introspective navel gazing um, and it's not narcissistic or anything like that. It's actually the, the opposite. It's, it's choosing to, um, to, to look within and to come inside yourself to become more comfortable um, with who you are um, and take ownership of, uh, all of yourself uh, to be able to grow. And that's the best gift, in my opinion, that you can actually give not only to yourself, but to people around you, because you, you're able to kind of move through the world in a more secure, a more informed and a more mature way. Mm. Uh, and so gift more of yourself back into the world. So really, it's an exercise in giving rather than just uh, doing it for yourself. Yeah. And it's not exactly the um, easiest lifestyle to take on. I mean, I'm sure at the beginning it was quite challenging. <laughs> that That's one meal right. a day it's, alone it's... would have been enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's got its challenges for sure. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So, Stephen, before we go, please tell the listeners where they can find more about you and also about the Supermind Meditation. 
Okay, well, um, <clears throat> we have a Facebook group. Uh, it's facebook.com slash I love my supermind. So if you want to find anything about supermind online, uh, you can look up I love my supermind. Our Facebook group is um, a public group. We do meditations every Monday and uh, streaming from that page. Uh, if you want to get involved with meditation, that's the best way to jump in. And I'll, I guide live guided meditations through the Facebook page every Monday. Um, and if you find you're getting some traction with that and you enjoy the process, you can request to join our community, which has some additional sessions. Um, and I also have a website, ilovemysupermind.com. Um, and we're actually just about to launch a complete uh, online training program, which is, is designed to be able to give people a progressive system of practices that they can uh, start to use in their life um, and then, you know, complement that with plugging into the community as well. That's so cool. I love it. I'm going to have to join myself. <laughs> cool. I'll be on. <laughs> well, thank you so Excellent. much. I really appreciate it, Stephen, um, for sharing your story. I think it's fascinating. I'm, I could talk about this for ages. I've got so many questions about it. Um, thank you again. And I will definitely be in touch and I will be signing up onto that this afternoon. Thank you very much, Ansley. Th thanks very much for having me as well. My pleasure. Thank you. Ants Talk. It's like Oprah, but not.